Hi, my name is Aisha Small. Thanks for downloading this episode of the Youth in Education podcast, where I interview interesting guests to explore developments in education, research and policy that affect young people, primarily in the UK. This podcast is brought to you by the Youth Think and Action Tank, LKM Co. Hello people, I'm very excited to bring you episode one of Youth in Education. Today I'm joined by my colleague Bart Shaw, and we discuss some fascinating findings related to his recent report, low-income pupils progress at secondary school. This is my first podcast, so we have a few technical issues at the start. We're on quieter than Bart for the first minute or so of our conversation, but it gets sorted out fairly quickly. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Let's get geeking. Hey Bart, how are you doing? Good, thank you. Good, good. How's your day been so far? Uh, Excellent, thanks. Good, good. Very excited about doing this podcast. Oh, good. Why is that? (laughs) Because it's the first one. Uh, So um, it'll be really good to see what comes out of it and uh, if people are interested, which I hope they are. They will be, it's an interesting topic. All right, so first question, we're going to kick straight off into what report are we talking about today? So uh, I thought I'd talk about the um, recently published uh, Progress in Secondary School report that we wrote for the Social Mobility Commission and published in uh, February. Uh, So quite sort of fresh in the memory. Um, and one that we were really lucky uh, in that there was um, uh, a lot of media interest in it and uh, I think it's got some quite interesting things to say. Uh, So the report is um, about the the progress that children make at secondary school, in particular children who are eligible for free school meals, so uh, using that as a proxy for kind of um, household uh, income or, or, or children who come from families uh, who have low household incomes uh, and it was uh, prompted by um, some of I think Becky Allen's work uh, and sh- who showed or she showed that um, for kids at primary school sort of who had come out of primary school uh, with good grades in their um, in their SATs tests uh, but who are from um, low-income families, by the time they do their GCSEs, that kind of, that advantage that maybe they've had over their peers at primary school um, has disappeared. So they make less progress at secondary school and children who aren't eligible for free school meals, who'd, who were kind of in the, in the group of low prior attainers at primary school, uh, generally overtake them. That's quite a shocking. Yeah, it is, isn't it? When I read the report, I remember thinking that's actually terrible. Yeah. How did you feel when you found that out? So I think, yeah, it's a it's a really helpful thing to have pointed out because um, it's almost like a very clear call to action, isn't it? That we're not that our secondary that at secondary school in general, obviously not for every individual child. And it's important to say that actually that this is sort of looking at um, uh, without going too much into the methodology at this stage. You know, this is looking at trends from across the National Pupil Database, so it's looking at averages. Um, what is the National Pupil Database for people who don't know? Yeah, sure. So uh, the uh, Department for Education collects uh, a whole bunch of data um, about children's performance at school, I guess performance in terms of their kind of um, their exam results, um, and also uh, in terms of their uh, things like their ethnicity, um, their uh, gender, uh, their um, whether or not they're eligible for free school meals. 
um, so uh, so yeah, so so the, so the report was taking that kind of really shocking finding and thinking, well, we need to look a bit further and in a bit more detail at progress in secondary school, particularly for um, free school meals kids, and um, and try and break down that progress by a whole range of other factors as well. So, for example, the sort of uh, the area, the, 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 how deprived the area that their secondary school is in, you know, does that make a difference? Uh, whether the school's in an urban or a rural setting, does that make a difference? The ethnicity of the kid, does, does that make a difference in terms of uh, how um, children eligible for free school meals do at secondary school? So it's kind of, so it's in two sections, the first section of which is kind of breaking down those quantitative findings uh, and showing the um, showing the trends, um, and then the second section is we went to the academic literature uh, and uh, tried to uh, see whether there are any reasons um, for those trends or things that have been suggested that might be causal factors. So going back to what you're saying about the different things and do they make a fa- make a difference? Mm. Um, you mentioned a few different things. What were the two that made the most difference? Yeah, so the one that, I don't know about what made the most difference, but in terms of the, the things that um, I found personally interesting or wasn't necessarily expecting. Firstly, I, I come from a uh, teaching background. I was a geography teacher in a school in Derbyshire that uh, was actually sort of on the edge of a small town, but the cohort was distinctly rural. Um, so for me, it was really interesting to see that there was an urban-rural um, uh, a sort of a difference in that children who went to uh, secondary urban secondary schools um, or disadvantaged pupils, pupils from low-income backgrounds eligible for free, for free school meals did better or made more progress in those urban secondaries um, than they did in rural secondaries and vice versa. Children who weren't um, eligible for free school meals did better in the rural secondaries than the urban secondaries in terms of progress. Why is that, do you think? Or what, what did you... Yeah, so actually the, the literature doesn't say, very, doesn't say very much about that. Um, it might be that there's a... Um, so one of the other findings that was interesting was that uh, being from an ethnic minority background has a, has a sort of protective effect. So uh, if you are uh, eligible for free school meals and from an ethnic minority background, you are on average going to be doing better than the white British children's. Is that across all ethnic minority backgrounds? It is actually, it is. Apart from, well, sorry, I shouldn't say that because we, uh, we're using quite kind of crude, um, uh, quite, how can I put it, divisions between, um, not divisions, sort of groupings of ethnic minority uh, children. So when you go into a more detail, the literature says, you know, for example, we didn't treat uh, Gypsy Roma Traveller pupils in an ethnic group. Now they don't make more progress. But in terms of the broad groupings we looked at, uh, so things like um, uh, children from um, Black Caribbean backgrounds, Black African backgrounds. Actually, I'm not, not even sure whether we distinguish between those for that. Um, uh, Pakistani, Bangladeshi backgrounds. Most ethnic minority backgrounds, there's yeah. a protective factor. Yeah, most ethnic minority backgrounds. Um, so that was something that, 
Well, actually, it's sort of we'd, we'd, we'd found that previously in the report that we, we published another report back in at the end of December uh, 2016 uh, that kind of examined the, uh, looked at attainment, I guess, as well as progress uh, and looked at the sort of the way that uh, gender, ethnicity and poverty kind of interact um, to uh, uh, to affect children's attainment at school, and so and we found that there. We found that um, uh, white British children didn't do as well. So it wasn't. Uh, and when we looked at things like value added, which show um, a kind of proxy for progress, then uh, that was the case there as well. So I guess that wasn't. So the the ethnicity thing wasn't surprising. In that sense, um, it was you know interesting that it confirmed what we found in the previous report and what others have been writing about for a lot longer than, than we have as well. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I think that's it's almost like quite a, a, a positive finding in a way. So are we saying yeah. that poor, so in general, if I understood it correctly, we're saying that poor children make less progress in secondary school even if they have uh, kind of exceeded expectations in primary school is that right right okay but then within that there are a variety of factors when they reach yeah. secondary school so exactly. for those particular poor children is it still the poor children we're talking yeah. about here um depending on their ethnicity the uh, no, reduction in progress effect or something yeah. like that is mitigated in some ways yeah so if they're white they're probably not going to do that great they will make are likely to make less progress okay. than if they're from non-white groups Okay. Um, which is interesting to see how the interplay of those things work. Yeah. And then you're also saying that if I'm a teacher, for example, or a school leader or whatever in a rural environment, in those places in particular, my poor kids are definitely going to do badly. No, sorry, well, I shouldn't say that. I think the point I'm making, there may be some overlap between those two findings in that if you're um, the poor kids in rural areas are more likely to be white British. Uh, and um, poor kids in urban areas, although still more likely to be white British, there's a larger cohort of ethnic minority pupils as well. So that might be explained some of the overlap there. That's interesting, actually. Yeah. Um, okay, so it's possibly to do with the numbers of types of children involved, possibly. Possibly. It might also be to do with uh, school compositions. One of the other really interesting findings we found was that uh, schools with uh, uh, the, the, the children from low-income backgrounds made the most progress in schools either where there were very few other children from low-income backgrounds or where there were lots and lots of children from low-income backgrounds. So, um, so again, that's a, a sort of... A, a, and schools in the middle with um, average numbers or, or average proportions were, were the schools where low-income children made least progress. So maybe there's some overlap there in terms of, well, schools, uh, the, it tends to be urban schools where there are, um, you know, 60%, 70% children eligible for free school meals. Mm. Um, so maybe there's an overlap there as well. So at the kind of near the start of our conversation, you mentioned your background as a geography teacher. Yeah. So take me through your, in terms of the composition of the kind of school that you worked in, what are the things that would have been that factors interplaying there and what do you wish that you'd known? Yeah, so I guess our school, my school, fitted into that middle category where it was just slightly under average um, average proportion, national average proportions of 
children eligible for free school meals. So, uh, and there was uh, you know, a real noticeable gap at something the school was aware of and trying to take steps to, to reduce that gap. Um, I guess you know, one of the things that would be, that I kind of think is quite interesting is, is, is looking at progress rather than attainment. So quite often um, for schools, it's, I guess the, the end goal is about attainment at GCSE. Um, and so um, it can be the case, not in every school, some schools are brilliant at picking up um, tr progress trends really early in key stage three. Uh, year seven and talking to primary, talking to the feeder primaries about you know what what are those progress trajectories like? I know it sounds obvious to and us, so, but yeah. could you explain the difference between attainment and progress for people who sometimes get confused with it? Right, sure. So attainment is just the grades that uh, a child gets at GCSE, mm. uh, whereas progress is from uh, it's comparing those grades to a particular starting point and looking at how far the child has travelled between the starting point and the... Thank you, sir. <laughs> That's okay. That's okay. Um, so, uh, so I think, you know, when I, was, when I was teaching, I was probably guilty of, of thinking a lot about the how far away from GC, particular GCSE grades the children that I taught were. It, 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 my key stage four, my, my exam classes, uh, and um, you know this isn't something new. I'm not saying anything particularly original here, but it was just really brought into focus. And a lot of our case studies said this as well. That the, the good case studies they were, had a real forensic kind of. They used they they examined pro progress data right from right from the start, and there was as much emphasis on you know the year seven child in their first term, how much progress have they made as there was on looking at the year 11 child in the run up to GCSE. So I think that's really, I think that's something that I, I kind of, that's an, almost a mindset thing um, that I wish I'd <laughs> thought about differently uh, when I was teaching, so certainly. And I know that in your background, you, you know, you've been a teacher, but you've also been a civil servant. So how do those kind of previous lives um, impact or, you know, how you do your research and how you approach it or also how you, What's your freedom questions? Basically, how have those two bits of what you've done previously in your career um, impacted how you see the report findings, for example? Right. So I think um, I think the so you're right. I, I um, before being a teacher, I worked in the Department for Education, and I think the I think in particular when we're writing our recommendations, that we really try and think about what's going to be. Um, Plausible. What's going to be something that you know? If you're if you're asking policymakers to do something, is that something that um, is is possible, or is it you know something that in theory might be? Um, so I'm thinking about we. So the, the uh, lots of the literature uh, ha shows that for um, for poorer children, setting is fairly counterproductive. Um, so, uh, so you know, one of the reasons that these high attaining or, or, or medium attaining uh, primary school kids from low income backgrounds don't uh, kind of don't continue doing well all the way through to GCSEs is because they're more likely, even if they're higher attainers, they're, they're, they're less for a, for a variety of other factors to do with teacher expectations and perceptions of them and, and behavior and things like that. 
uh, are less likely to end up in higher sets uh, at school, and that this, and so that there's a, an effect of that kind of that peer group effect of being in a lower group in a in a sort of lower group might um, uh, combined with those teacher expectations might count against them a bit. Does that make sense? I mean, if you're actually a high attainer, that you'd still be in a lower yeah. group. So yeah, sure. So I think uh, I think it's because secondary schools don't use a variety of measures to decide on their groupings for things like, you know, uh, for, for subjects where across the country... Like wearing subjects, maths. Like that, right. <laughs> so it's not just SATS results that, is, that forms the, the, the kind of decision of which group a child goes into. There's things like, you know, um, I don't know whether your school uses, my school uses used uh, CATS tests, kind of general cognitive ability uh, testing. Mm. And um, also some of that's to do with what yeah. I know we've spoken about previously in terms of some schools like to use that because they feel that key stage two data is unreliable. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, uh, and also teachers are making judgment as time goes on, well, is this child in the right set? And sometimes what's their behaviour like and how's that affecting other children in the group? Mm. Um, and and so that can so 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 for for those for a variety of reasons, uh, poorer children are more likely to end up in lower sets, even if they are middle or even high ability. Sometimes I mean obviously it's l l less likely if they're high ability, but and that that can mean that they make less progress, or that's one of the things that can affect the amount of progress they make at secondary school. So I guess it's a uh, going back to that um, original question about. Uh, you know the, the the my background as a policymaker and what we as at LKM LKM Co try and do with recommendations is it would be easy to think well you know let's get rid of setting I don't think that's something that a um, I, I, I think it's like a room for the heads of maths and I, yeah, I think right. not many of them would there be saying reasons. that's okay for yeah, all, absolutely, all years yeah. absolutely so what our recommendation ended up being. Um, more about trying to encourage schools to think about what the impact of setting might be on individual pupils. Mm. So which I think is something that schools are really well set up to do. I think schools are getting more, they're having, um, uh, getting to grips with data more and more. Or when I say data, I don't necessarily just mean you know numbers. I mean they're getting to grips with uh, tracking their pupils. You know, lots of information you know, what, what, what are their kind of um, t half termly test scores like, as well as, you know, what's their, how do they seem in class and uh, are they happy learning and things like that. So I think schools are getting better at tracking those. So it's, it's, it's maybe thinking, well, is setting something that is um, having a negative effect for a group of pupils in your school? And if so, are there other ways that you can, uh, you can think about doing your groupings. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. So for people listening now, if they're kind of in a position in the school that could influence that, you'd like them to come away with, is setting the best thing for our... Yeah, and it might be, but just, you know, I think it'd be, I think schools need to be aware that that can be a problem. And so be thinking, almost evaluating the impact of their groupings and so thinking, you know, is it, if it, and is that the most appropriate way of grouping our particular pupils in a way that's going to be conducive to their their progress. Okay so that's kind of school level and you were saying that you feel that it's important to make recommendations that are you know 
practical in some way at policy level. So what do you feel, like, what would you like a policymaker who's listening to this to take away and to have as their mind worm, for example? Well, you put me on the spot there. <laughs> um, now can we move on? Fair enough. <laughs> Not a problem. Okay, so in terms of the report was commissioned by Social Mobility Commission, is that right? Yeah. Okay. What is social mobility to you? Yeah, it's a good question because um, I'm not sure everyone really has the same idea of what social mobility uh, means and I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely comfortable with the concept myself. For me, it's about, um, it's about choices and opportunities and, uh, and actually looking at how, how can you, um, how can we operate an education system that doesn't hold back the life chances of children from low-income backgrounds in a way that it maybe does at the moment, intentionally or not. Um, so for me, it's about can we create opportunities where everyone can then make the choices that they that they want to in life and aren't constrained by um, you know, uh, aren't constrained by so much by how they do in education, particularly early on. What if the choices they want to make are choices that maybe don't fit in with what their middle class teachers want them to aspire to? Is that still okay? Personal opinion, obviously. Personal opinion. <laughs> I don't know what the report uh, says about that. I mean, obviously uh, not. I think obviously a, ch a child's choice is, um, is, you know, about them and what they want to do uh, rather than what their teachers or even, you know, parents um, necessarily um, necessarily think. But yeah, they, I'm not sure. I think, yeah. Well, no, I was just thinking, because part of our thing here is we're about, what's that strap line, allowing, thinking that all children have the uh, chances to make a fulfilling transition to adulthood. So right. I guess that means yeah. different things for different people, but the point is they need the options to be able to... They need the options, right. They need the options. A social change. Is it the job of schools? You know, we've both been teachers. I'm still a teacher a bit of the time. Um, and schools get asked to do a lot of things. So are all of the issues that you found out about in the report, are they all things that schools can solve? No, it's definitely not. But they're all things that schools have some levers over, whether or not it's the most important lever or whether if all schools were um, doing things that made, that, you know, that, that didn't disadvantage certain groups of pupils and I'm sure that all schools are, you know, that's the least of their in intentions. Um, uh, that, that would that eradicate all the, um, the other areas of disadvantage? N no, it wouldn't. And one of the things that we found was that if you, um, and other people have found as well, that um, within school differences have more of an impact on progress than between school differences. So, if uh, uh, so, if you eradicated the differences between schools, then they would still you'd still find that within within schools, children with free school meals did. Um, so, if all schools were doing everything exactly the same, you'd still find that there'd be um, children eligible for free school meals were making less progress. And part of that is the, is um, 
to do with things that happen outside of school. And so part of that is to do with things like the home learning environment and what support parents can offer. Um, uh, and part of that is, um, but that's not to say that schools can't make a difference in those. You know, there the, the are the case study schools that we use for this, the, they were often finding ways to engage with parents. That maybe isn't gonna eradicate a problem, but it's being aware that, okay, so you're not gonna change everything in a kid's life, but what can you as a school do to make things easier? Make, make it easier for um, that child who's, who's got you know, things going on at home that make it very difficult for the child to learn. What support can you give that makes it just that little bit easier? So I think it's, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm definitely someone who doesn't want to uh, uh, see schools as the reason for uh, a lack of social mobility in the country, right? There's so many different things, the way the, the labour market is, the way you know society is um, uh, that has you know have impacts well beyond what schools can um, affect. But I think it's worth school being aware of. Okay, so there are things that we can do to boost the progress of disadvantaged pupils. Mm, yeah, I think so. So it's basically what you're saying is that it's important. Schools can do some things, yeah, and they need to be aware of what those things are. Yeah but they can't do everything, right. um, which I think will be welcome for yeah. teachers listening to, yeah, to hear that. You know, there are children that you teach and you might, have, you might teach them all the way through secondary school and uh, you try really hard, variety of different things to try and get them uh, GCSE grades and then open up opportunities later in life. But there are things that you can't, or it feels like there's things that you can't do anything about. And so it feels sometimes quite unfair, or I found it, felt quite unfair as a teacher to be, uh, you, know, you feel like you're being held accountable for a whole bunch of things outside of your control. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it is important to recognise that, but at the same time, not forgetting that, you know, you still do have an opportunity to, you know, and it's an opportunity to, to, to help support the progress of individual kids, no matter what's going on. Yeah, and I think it's interesting, The so as somebody who's secondary trained, and I know that you are as well, the primary school fact still shocked me, um, just because, okay, normally you think, well, they won't do very well in primary school, so that's going to continue in secondary school. But yeah. for children who actually were doing well in primary school, to understand that secondary school impedes their progress, sure. that's... And it raises a whole load of questions about why that is, yeah. and why... Uh, you know, is it to do with secondary schools not being as good? You know, I'd like to think that that's not the case. Being a secondary teacher myself, uh, or you know, but I th and there is certainly this stuff in the literature saying, well, you know, outside influences, peer influences, neighbourhood influences become more important in um, in a child's life, uh, and um, and things like the the way that home learning structured and routines around home learning that. Um, uh, parents of secondary age children from low-income backgrounds are less likely to be putting in place, you know, structures and routines around homework and things like that. That does make a does make a difference. Mm. Um, what can schools do about that? Is is part of it to do with um, 
also so you know providing places for children to do that in in lieu of home Um, but also supporting parents in terms of maybe some parents don't feel able to support their child although they might want to yeah and i actually think there's i i I, um (laughs) yeah both those things and uh but i also think um the having those conversations with with primary schools and finding out as much as you can about you know what are the what is the home learning environment like for each kid so secondary schools being aware of and a lot of them are a lot of transition arrangements are are great and there's lots of information shared um but just kind of knowing where knowing where that might be a problem and thinking about what can you do as early as possible to help support those kind of routines and mm. um, uh, and kind of independent learning. So in terms of transition, it's interesting because I know we spoke a little bit before we um, were recording about how transitions quite often uh, very much about handover, and then after the point when the and a lot happens before the young people or children as they are at that point go to secondary school, so there's lots of liaison then. Um, then they get handed over, and then there's not a great deal backwards, if that makes any sense. So when they're in yeah. year seven, um, there's not a great deal happening still with primary schools at that point. It's kind of they go off to secondary school and that's that. Um, do you, is there anything, I know it's not in the scope of the report, but just uh, now that we're sitting down talking about it, that you think would be interesting or useful for secondary schools to explore or even just think about in terms of tra- transition beyond the traditional points that would help with some of the issues that you found? Yeah, I mean, I, d- I definitely don't have the kind of the, the answers and the, oh yeah, all secondary schools should do X, Y and Z. But it's, um, I think particularly for children with special edu- educational needs, as you say, that sort of, that, um, that transition to secondary school is a real kind of, uh, danger point I guess and you think that there's been you're moving from a situation where there is um, a certain kind of an environment where there's a certain amount of nurture and support to an environment where you might be getting that nurture and support but not everywhere and from every adult and that you're having all of a sudden to have relationships with 11 or 12 different adults whereas before you maybe have one or two so I think that's um, I think that's something that you know what the answer is, I'm not quite sure. Um, uh, well, maybe it's not about the answers. Maybe yeah. it's just about getting people to think about it. Like, oh yeah, what could we do? Yeah, sure. And what and, and is there things that those that those kind of long established relationships at primary school where you know you can where you could tap into those somehow. So uh, you know, where it's not just a complete wave goodbye to primary school when you move into year seven. But there's ways that you can, you know, it would take a bit of complex reorganising, wouldn't it? But, uh, um, but, but even sort of thinking about kind of interventions after school or, or things like that, that might be where you know, primary teachers and secondary teachers could work together with uh, groups of, particularly vulnerable groups of um, year sevens might be interesting. Yeah, it would be interesting. Um, in terms of, so we're going to start wrapping up in a little bit. If you were to summarise the report and the findings say in a minute and what you wanted people to take away what would it be i'm not going to time it 
<laughs> well, I think the most important thing is just being aware that there is this real drop-off in progress for children from low-income families at secondary schools. Uh, at secondary school, so I think, um, I think that's, I guess, for for, for policymakers to be aware of, um, particularly in the context of things like pupil premium funding and the kind of the ratio, the primary secondary rate per pupil funding ratios you have. Uh, for that, that's something that you know could be explored, but also, um, I think being aware of some of the some of the nuance that tells you well what are the particular you know what are the particular things that might be so so special educational needs for example being a particular um, um, I guess um, a particular challenge in terms of making progress at secondary school where um, uh, where a whole range of factors around secondary school make it more difficult for children to carry on learning um, at the rate they were doing at primary school. Um, and uh, I can't remember where I was going with this now. I was just thinking in terms of, when you mentioned special educational needs, I was thinking about what you were talking about earlier in our conversation with regards to the interplay or the intersection of different things. So, you know, a child with special educational needs will already be at a disadvantage in secondary school um, in terms of their progress. But if you layer on top of that the fact that they are also poor, then you have those two sets of things interacting and then that's going to impede their progress yeah, sure. even more so. So people need to maybe think about that. What was the most surprising yeah, piece of research <laughs> that you came across or what some, the one that stayed with you the most, even if it wasn't surprising, but what's the one? It stayed with me the most. There was some, some things written about kind of parental in, engagement with schools that, was, that I found really interesting. Um, some of which showing that you know, it depends on kind of what you're what you're measuring about parental engagement, whether there's a difference between um, a between low income and higher income families, and b whether there's a sort of things that change at secondary school relative to primary school. So, so for example, there used to be uh, a much bigger gap, sort of socioeconomic gap, in terms of you know parents attending parents evening, and that's that's changing. That gap's reduced. Uh, lots. So in that, in those sense, you think, okay, the, the, there is as much engagement. Then when maybe when you look at kind of parents' confidence in supporting, directly supporting their child with homework, um, then at secondary school, I guess there's there's more subjects, they're more in depth, uh, and it becomes more difficult you know, for parents who maybe not had as much education themselves to to support. So I think some of that stuff is, um, was kind of quite new to me and interesting. Thank you. All right, so my final question to you, Bart, is, first of all, what do you do interesting in the weekend? <laughs> you were expecting that, weren't you? Uh, no. <laughs> uh, I guess I'm quite into the outdoors, so I do. Um, uh, and I live in Sheffield, so I'm right on the edge of the Peak District where I live, so I do a lot of uh, what we call uh, fell running, which is just running but um, on uh, fells is just you know what uh, people in northern England call hills. Oh okay, uh, Northern, northern chat. Southern, <laughs> southern listeners so just yeah hill running and, uh, and climbing 
uh, rock climbing and stuff like that. Just a regular action yeah, man's weekend. And also, what are you? Is there anything interesting that you're reading at the moment, and what have you taken away from it? I'm reading um, uh, Cleverlands at the moment. Mm-hmm. You that's know, yeah, that's the one. Yeah, uh, that's just uh, it's um, it's fascinating. It's just a really interesting insight into different education systems but what's kind of different about it i guess is that you know she's talking to you know it's not research in the sense it's not like huge samples or whatever but she's talking to parents and children and teachers and and uh, and so kind of putting those all those conversations together and she's going and living in different countries with people who are parents or teachers or parents and teachers and so I think it's putting those, uh, and plus she's also doing the kind of telling you about what the what the policies are and what the history, where those policies came from, the history of the policies. So I, th- I find that fascinating. That sort of that mix of kind of uh, meta stuff. You know, what's the what's the education policy in that country, and how did it arrive at that stage, and what were the drivers of that policy, combined with well, how does this parent feel that impacts on them and their child and other people and their friends children how does the child feel about it and so I'm, I'm finding that really interesting it's got really good reviews actually that's yeah. really really good reviews yeah. okay so my final evil question which we didn't talk about but um, I only just thought about it is supposing so you've got an interesting background of teaching research now and also policy if you were education secretary for the day <laughs> what would you do um there's a large part of me would like to say slightly mischievously uh, nothing, <laughs> you know, because I think uh, I think part of the part of the difficulty of trying to affect positive change in education is that the goalposts keep changing quite often, and there's you know we you know for for as long as I can remember, everyone's talked about kind of initiative overdrive or overload or whatever you like to call it. So part of me would like to think let's. Let's take a deep breath and try and uh, think about how things might play out in the long term rather than over the next parliamentary cycle or what have you. That's you know obviously not fair on <laughs> on uh, on policymakers, uh, lots of whom are trying to do that. So if I was education secretary for the day, yeah, maybe I'd try and lay off lay off any new initiatives <laughs> there'd be a collective cheer of people that listen to their podcasts right now <laughs> thanks very much Bob. no problem thank, thank you, you.